Fate Reforged, and the Banned and Restricted List updates on episode 41 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 41 of So Many Insane Plays, where Steve and I will review Fate Reforged for Vintage and analyze the latest Banned and Restricted List updates. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. We have a few announcements this episode. Steve, you have some Delver content coming out. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I actually have a Delver primer, or primer, however you prefer, uh, <laughs> that was published by Eternal Central earlier this month. Uh, of course, uh, it came out a couple weeks before the banned and restricted list announcement. But the good news is that 95% of the content in that primer is unaffected. So it's uh, over. It's almost 60 pages, actually. And the cool part about, you know, when we first did, started doing this podcast, Kevin, we talked about how a podcast or audio format lends itself to certain kinds of commentary and analysis. But there are certain things that articles can do better than than podcasts or audio or even video and one of the things that you can do is you can really sort of present opening hands and break them down mm. so one of the things that i do in the article is i have a bunch of visuals opening hands and and i try to you know there's a the articles as i said pretty big <laughs> but one of the things that i do is i try and go deep into things that you normally can't discuss in, in a format like this and one of those is mulliganing and so i try and identify the lines between keepable and unkeepable hands you know so you've got basically multiple categories of analysis when you do a mulligan. We've discussed those to some extent, but you've got sort of the auto keeps, the auto mulls, and then you've got everything in between. And so I pressed the boundaries of those by examining a series of, of really interesting hands. That I think it's applicable actually to anyone who plays blue decks in, in vintage, not just Delver decks. And then I also do a lot of analysis, in-game analysis, situational analysis. That's a really a really dense primer that, that would be of interest for people who like long form uh, you know, articles. You know, it's interesting. Delver as an archetype is... <sighs> It's a fascinating subject for a primer in the manner that you've written, especially yeah. because unlike many decks, and there are many vintage decks that have been around for a long time, that deck went through so many rapid, meaningful changes thanks to metagame updates and new card printings. It's it's amazing. Well, since you happen to mention that, I actually that's the first thing I have to do in the article is sort of set out you know, it's evolution because it, it's true. I mean, the archetype has, in a sense, kind of defined a lot of the evolution in vintage over the last year and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. And so I really take some time, you know, starting with, you know, the very first Delver appearance in a vintage top eight to sort of the really seminal changes made by people like Mike Solomasi, who, you know, among the most important innovations was removing fast bond, remarkably mm-hmm. enough, as you as you recall. You, our listeners can't, can't uh, see this, but Kevin is nodding in agreement. <laughs> uh, and and, and, you know, when people first encounter, you know, the first weeks of the Vintage Super League, when people first saw my Delver deck, I was the first person to pilot Delver in the Vintage Super League in Season 1. People were wondering, you know, why isn't Fastbond in here? But, um, you know, it was actually an incredibly important point of evolution for that deck. It allowed it to escape a lot of the assumptions of, of Gush decks up to that point. Um, and then, you know, certainly all the, the the raft of printings, you know, its performance in the last two Vintage Championships and culminating in the Treasure Cruise dominated Top 8. 
but it really has a, you know, sort of paralleled the, the evolution of the format as a whole. But the other things I do, and so the, that's the first thing I do is set out its evolution. Then I, you know, um, actually sketch out its game plan, its stages, the trajectory of it, of the uh, the game plan into turns. I, I think my, my heuristics are the early game, the mid game, the mid late game, and then the late game. But then after all that, I go into mulliganing. And then the second major substantive topic I talk about after mulliganing is actually discarding, which is remarkably enough, something that is probably more important in Delver than probably any other archetype besides bizarre decks. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I then I have a, a comprehensive analysis of basically every card that goes in Delver, uh, a really quite long discussion of Gitaxian Probe that maybe we'll touch on in a future episode. Fascinating card. And then a lot of sideboard analysis discussion. But uh, it's it's quite lengthy and, and quite meaty, if you will. Speaking of, actually speaking of meaty articles, uh, I wrote a, Kevin, I, I, I think I'm going to send you a copy of this, but I wrote an, uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street uh, series review for a magazine called Shadowland Magazine number 10. It came out in December, but uh, you've, I think you've seen my essay. It's yeah. 10,000 words. It looks yeah. like, uh, you know, dense analysis of uh, film. And if you're a fan of the horror genre or Nightmare on Elm Street, I definitely encourage you to check it out. Kevin and I are film buffs, so. Uh, yeah, and if you'd like to... And if you're interested in that and you'd like to read the article, there's also an awesome four-hour-something-long documentary on Netflix about the whole Nightmare series. Those two things would be good companions for each other. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, my article is, I think, much denser, but that's a... Yeah, absolutely. It is. Documentary. Going back to Delver, though, I would also point out that anyone who... There might be a few of our listeners who are inclined to think that Delver is now a thing of the past, thanks to what has happened to Treasure Cruise, and I would caution those people away from that. That deck is hmm. is not going away. That's that's going to be one of the interesting discussions, I think, in our in our analysis of the restricted list changes. But yeah. it, it bear, it's it's worth both mentioning and bearing in mind that most of my experience with Delver is with Delver before Treasure Cruise. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, much of what I talk about in my primer actually pertains to the, the archetype before Treasure Cruise. Um, you know, in, in in essence, Treasure Cruise is kind of like a a, a late a late tag on to to my experience and understanding of that ar- archetype. It's a coda, if you will. Sure. And it's fascinating as I review our show notes here in preparation for this show. It's almost as though Delver is the common theme across everything we're going to talk about today. It influences so powerfully everything in the format these days. Anyway, we should really get to it, but we've got more announcements. Steve, by the time our listeners hear this, week one of season two of the Vintage Super League will be in the books. Are you excited? I am. I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, the, the, um, the Vintage Super League was a lot of fun. And I think it was great exposure for the format. I think it, you know, the the, the key for me is going to be, see what Wizards does to continue to promote promote the format online. And uh, I was very happy with, God, I don't remember when our last podcast was, Kevin, but... <laughs> it was in November. So actually, many listeners may not know that I actually won the, the first season of the Vintage Super League. Wow, I hope that that's not the case. But just in case anyone doesn't, yes, yeah, Steve, first place in the first ever <laughs> Vintage Super League season one. And season two starts basically right now. Oh, and who's the who's the new competitor for a season two? I'll let you. I'll let you. Well, it's none other than Kai Buddha, who is a, a longtime vintage uh, fan and player and champion, and I think he brings an awesome dynamic, not only in terms of his play skill and the, the history he brings right. from a Hall of Famer standpoint. But also, he has some really interesting historical dynamics with other competitors, such as John Finkel. Yeah. And so I think he just is going to release some really interesting narratives. He's a vintage player, with cap lower ca- lowercase v. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, exactly. So I think he fits quite well into the 
the overall grouping of the competitive. We'll, we'll post a link to an article uh, previewing the second season of the Vintage Super League in the show notes. Yeah, it's on the mothership today. Um, oh, cool. I'm, I'll have to check that out. Um, yeah. But um, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the, the second season. I, I'm also looking forward to seeing you know what people brewed up because of the changes that have occurred that we're about to discuss. Um, but um, you know the, the format's basically the same. The only difference, as Kevin mentioned, is the last place player gets sort of, quote, relegated or voted off the island. So it, Josh um, Utter-Layton, it actually was a very intense battle for last place. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> or to avoid last place, I should say. Um, and uh, Josh Charlotte Layton, fortunately, I think barely got last place, and um, the folks are really excited about about the season this season. And uh, we're going to get a lot more Wizard support and coverage. We'll be streaming on the Wizards uh, stream. Oh, that's great! Continuously through. But I think more importantly, from my perspective, is what does this do for Vintage? And one of the things I thought was really cool was the Holiday Open, the Holiday Tournament on Magic mm-hmm. Online, which had which is invitation only, and by invitation meaning you had to qualify. So you had to play in one of the dailies and, and do three one or four zero, and it was like I don't remember it was 100 and some players 130 some players and the funny thing was I I played eight rounds I went four and four I lost I played five Delvermeers I lost all but one of them and uh <laughs> the funny thing though was the top four had three vintage Super League players Randy Bueller LSV and Efro with yeah. ra- with uh LSV beating Randy in the finals so that was pretty sweet Steve do you have any reflections on season one from the vintage Super League going into season two well I think what I learned was the importance of selecting the right deck at each interval and uh, in particular, I think the most important decision I made in the entire tournament, besides probably selecting what to play in the playoffs, was what to play week four, which is really interesting because there were three sort of dynamics that intersected. One was that I had gone 3-0 and with Doomsday, and the only other person to go 3-0 and was Chris Pakula, who was my, my week four opponent. So the interesting dynamic was that Chris had gone 3-0, and which is a strong incentive to continue to play the same deck, right? I had gone 3-0, which is a strong incentive to believe that I would play the same deck. So assuming that uh, Chris would look at the balance of those factors and decide, you know, that all things even, he wants to play the deck that, you know, play a deck that's good against Doomsday, he would play workshops. I built a Delver deck that is like the most hateful possible, work, you know, uh, deck for workshops. And that's that's what allowed me to go 4-0. But that was like the pivotal, pivotal decision in the entire tournament. Really uh-huh. interesting. Deck selection is possibly the most fun thing to speculate about, really, in the whole thing. Once you get in the middle of a game, then the speculation goes away and you've got great magic going on. But yeah. the narratives really, I think, all revolve around deck selection. Definitely. Uh, there's going to be some great matchups, too, in the, in the first couple of weeks. But And speaking of deck selection, though, the first the first three weeks are are the lame duck format, right? The, the pre-Fate Reforged pre-band-restricted format? Help me out. Not exactly. So because there's a delay or a lag on Magic Online, uh, we will be playing with the new band-restricted list in in free form, but we will not be playing with Fate Reforged. That's just not available to us. Okay. So you do have four gifts, but you don't have Fate Reforged cards. Interesting. Well, that's an interesting dynamic right there. So there's a, a strange format to be had yeah. that can be only available in that time. It's period. exactly it's it's a pocket format of vintage that will exist nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Well, I'm sure that our, our listeners, by the time they listen to this, they many of them will already know what you've chosen to play. So I, I won't expect you to spoil it right here and now, but I'm really looking forward to it.
really you know, a good segue to discussion of the vintage ban and restricted list. One of the things that we have talked about, well, first of all, we talked about the vintage ban and restricted list many times. I think one of the podcasts that we we should direct our listeners to is the podcast where we talked about, I believe it, it, it coincided with an article I wrote for Eternal Central called What's the Least Unrestrictable Vintage Card? Mm-hmm. We had a, at least one or two episodes, I think it was roughly two years ago this time, maybe uh spring of 2013, I want to say, where we had a two-part episode where we discussed maybe even sort of every conceivable, you know, ban, ban uh, unrestriction or restriction that, you know, is not totally crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and gifts, we had a very long discussion on gifts, so maybe we should link folks to that. But um, one of the key points that we've sort of brought up over and over again, especially when Wizards announced the timing of ban and restriction, is that, in fact, the interval for ban and restriction announcements should be the exact opposite of what it is now for this very reason that is that in our ideal uh point in time for announcing ban and restriction re- bannings restrictions or unrestrictions or unbanning should be um in exactly midpoint between set release right right because because of this problem right here which is where you get vintage playables so you we, again we've talked about this vintage metagames are basically complex systems and when you introduce new printings they transform those systems or dramatically change those systems so when you unrestrict or restrict a card you're changing the system but what you really want to do is you want to be able to observe the impact of the new printing and when you introduce restrictions or unrestrictions at the same time it conflates those dynamics so you can't actually observe their effect directly and, and what we've what we're experiencing right now is a textbook example of that right and to, to an extreme degree because we have a restriction an unrestriction and new playable cards coming and, and a relevant unrestriction and, and all three all three of those things interact possibly in the same archetypes in vintage I mean, you have similar decks that are wanting to choose from new cards, restricted cards, and now unrestricted cards. Well, well they push things in different directions, but it just makes it difficult to tease out what the effects are. And exactly. from a policymaker perspective, the DCI, or a, a designer perspective, you want to be able to know what those are. And and so, you know, I'm I'm going to be, let's be upfront about it. Are you, Kevin? Are you pleased with the restrictions and unrestrictions? <sighs> I'm pleased with the unrestriction, absolutely. Uh, but you and I are both. Um, on the record, is there being several still viable unrestrictions? Yeah. Um, um, oh, I I'm on the fence about the restriction though, so I, I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I think it's I think you can make a case for it, but I'm very very hands off when it comes to the format in terms of quote unquote dominance yeah. these days. So I'm not necessarily in favor. Is in, in in isolation, I'm in favor of this restriction, and I'm in favor of this unrestriction or supportive of it at least. But but mm-hmm. I am not happy that they came together. At the, in, the intersection. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is the kind of thing I think you... Restricting Treasure Cruise to me makes a lot of sense, but give us gifts a couple months down the road. Let's let's see how this plays out. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so I don't know which one you want to tackle first. Let's talk Let's talk about Treasure Cruise first. Okay, I was going to say, our, our listeners are probably more interested in, in my thoughts on gifts since we've, you know, <laughs> since I was one of the people who got that restricted with, with some of the decks that I ran. Well, that's why I want to get Treasure Cruise out of the way, because there's not much too, too much more to be said that we haven't said. Sure. Past. So, I mean, the, the case for Restricting Treasure Cruise Cruise, I think, is fairly evident. In our last podcast, where we broke down the Vintage Championship, I made the claim that I think Vint- I think Treasure Cruise warrants restriction, but I think the empirical evidence will be mixed at the local level. But I also added, I said, in the large-scale tournaments, we will see Treasure Cruise dominating. And, yeah. I, and I think that the Holiday Championship uh, validated that. I think that there is a, can certainly be a claim that Treasure Cruise may be overrepresented online meta- metagame, but I, I suspect that if we had waited till Vintage Championship or 
I guess the Bizarro Moxon is now defunct, but whatever those large-scale tournaments are, we would have seen Treasure Cruise dominating them. And I forgot to mention this earlier, but I'm hopeful that on Magic Online we'll see quarterly events like those of the uh, the Holiday Open because that's the reason to play Magic on Vintage on Magic Online. Those are great tournaments. I think your your position on the Treasure Cruise restriction being justifiable in terms of its format presence slash dominance are definitely borne out by the numbers. We're going to talk about Fate Reforged in this podcast. We're also going to talk about our report card for Tons of Tark here. Yeah. And I'm not going to spoil the exact details, but Treasure Cruise's appearance in its first three months post-release are far and away higher than any other card since we've been doing this show. Wow. By a lot. In top eights. Okay. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Including and, like cards like Snapcaster Mage and things like that. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so the numbers are there. And dominance can take a lot of different meanings in people's eyes. I mean, a lot right. of people think dominance means, hey, this deck can't be beat or something like that. But the sheer portion of the the format is definitely borne out by the numbers in small and large tournaments, I think. And yeah. also high-level tournaments, as you've described, uh, right. like champs and the VSL and everything. So I think that is the angle by which it is certainly justifiable. And also, isn't this the first restriction? Yeah, this is the first restriction since Vintage was fully available on Magicon. Yeah. Which makes it yes. the first restriction during which or, or over which Magic Online was fully representative of the vintage card pool, at least, and therefore the format by extension. And there must be data behind the scenes that mirrors what we're seeing on sites like Morphling.d and the Dream. Just going forward, I'm going to ask that we include those large-scale vintage tournament online tournaments in our data, like the yeah, vin- yeah. like the Holiday Open. I know we committed to doing that before, and it was harder than I thought to to actually collect that data. But well, I don't think I mean there are no pre- premier events, so I don't think that's a problem. I think in there the daily events I don't are not large enough to to warrant inclusion. But I think the Holiday event is the you know. It is definitely worth including. I'm committed to doing exactly that then. So, so the um, going to the the first sort of marker or criterion for restriction has always been, in my view, empirical data and dominance. And and so, and I've usually tagged dominance is somewhere around. You know, in fact. <laughs> going back to my sort of articles on Star City, looking at Gush and Gifts and cards like that. Gifts, if I recall correctly, at its highest peak was somewhere around the mid-20s, like low 20s. Someone can sort of pull up my old articles looking at that. I used to do those metagame reports. But um, but Gush, I, and, and I think actually Thirst was the one that sort of is the benchmark. In Gush as well, the first iteration of Gush, meaning 2003. I, I tagged Dominance somewhere around 35 to 40% of top eights as a threshold. So I don't know if Treasure Cruise hit those levels. I don't know, Kevin, if you'll be able to answer that question, but that's something we can go back and look at. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly think it, it probably got close on Magic Online. I mean, 50% of the Vintage Championship top eight. I think more of the Holiday Magic Holiday Open top eight, it, it, it you know hit those numbers. Um, you know, part of the problem with Treasure Cruise, though, is you had a really strong deck, in my view, the best deck, and then you had a printing that, that boosted that deck. Mm-hmm. So in a little bit, it was kind of like what, uh, in, inversely, the effect that the unbanning of Time Vault had on, or the printing of Tezzeret and, uh, and simultaneous un, uh, re-errata of Time Vault had on Thirst. Thirst was fine until they printed Tezzeret and simultaneously fixed Time Vault. Those mm-hmm. things are coincided, which caused, which prompted within a year the restriction of Thirst. Totally justifiable on those grounds. So sometimes you have these things that converge, and Treasure Cruise just came at the wrong time and place. Um, <laughs> you know, if it hadn't been for Delver, I don't know if Treasure Cruise would have been restricted, but, but it, that's you know counter hypothetical. It's almost impossible to evaluate. Going to the sort of the second level though you know there are reasons not to re- restrict it treasure cruise one is just to give it the metagame more time to adapt evolve blah 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 you know i the uh, you know those are arguments that are, are moot 
but we can look at the data to try and see to the extent they have validity. Even if Delver didn't quite reach that sort of upper threshold or, or, or lower threshold, depending on what you call it, of dominance, its effect on the metagame was tremendous, if not profound. Um, the, the other sort of counter argument for restriction is that, well, does it then require the restriction of dig through time? What happens with, you know, does it make sense to restrict crews and not dig through time? And what does that mean? Is it, what does it mean if you have a, a dex that just auto include a restricted, restricted treasure cruise and the auto restricted or auto include a restricted dig through time? Does that become sort of an absurdity, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and it goes back to what I observed when we did our set review for Konzatark here, which is I'm completely baffled by the fact that they put both those cards in the same set. Yeah. They probably weren't anticipating it being this yeah. bad, but it, this is emblematic of that problem in compounding everything else they were talking about. Right. I mean, I, the only explanation is they didn't expect either card to be nearly as, as good as they proved to be. Um, <laughs> the, the, the thing, though, is that um, in terms of in terms of restriction policy, in terms of policy, I think that I suspect that the DCI was just justified in making this decision, but I don't think it was necessarily or necessary or I don't think it was a given. I don't think it was necessarily something they had to do. I think it was there was some agency on their part. They could have decided to wait three more months, you know, uh, but but uh, I think that this falls in that, you know, that category of something they didn't have to do, but it's totally justifiable that they did. And this is coming from someone I think maybe you're a little bit more libertarian about it than I am, but I am definitely someone who is supported very few restrictions over the years. I mean, we opposed, God's sakes, I think we opposed almost every major restriction in the last 10 years, you know, that you can imagine. I think the restrictions I was on board with were like Merchant Scroll, um, Trinisphere after the fact. At the time, I don't think we supported Trinisphere just because of the dominance point. Um, and I definitely was on board with uh, Thirst for Knowledge. And I think we criticized the restriction of Brainstorm and Company because they did it all at once. For the same, yeah. Yeah, my reasons. position was they should have just restricted one and and then, you know, Merchant Scroll and then probably Brainstorm, but yeah, restricting yeah. all five. And what's interesting is they they have undone some of that by yeah, unrestricting yeah. Gush. But uh, but to clarify a point you made earlier, I'm not I, I'm not in favor of more unrestrictions right now. I don't think there are really strong candidates at, the, at this point. You know, we talked about library, which, you know, depending on how the metagame evolves, can be really problematic. In the way it has evolved, I think for library is probably more problematic than it would have been, you know, I, I, uh, heck, uh, a couple weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a Fort Treasure Cruise environment, yeah. library is probably more innocuous, or that it has had been in the past. You know, um, anyway, I, I'm definitely not in favor of unrestricted ponder. Flash, I think you can make a really good case, but we don't have to rehash those arguments. I think the the point is that we both are of the view that tre- restricting Treasure Cruise was was justifiable, although there are arguments against it. I hope that. I, I know there is a short list of people working at Wizards that listen to our show every once in a while. I hope that those of you who are listening really consider the cross impacts of the banner restricted announcements coming at set release time because Vintage is representative of the, the worst case, I think, right about now. <laughs> and it might not seem that bad. I mean, this is a kind of a first world problem. But when your goal is to understand your format and rein it in, the policy that has been put into place is about the least productive policy to that in my opinion as we've talked about there may be a a different case for restrictions versus unrestrictions in that regard but yeah they have different effects sure yeah but but um a a distinction could be drawn there but i understand the the reason for it is administrative simplicity but Mm -hmm. but i don't i i think is a policy matter that's a mistake i mean we've we've talked about that before so i don't need to rehash it but i agree with you entirely well so anyway i I think we're going to talk more about this a little bit when we get to our report card of kanzatark here but i think that we haven't heard 
the end of the ripples of Treasure Cruise and and this particular nexus of events. So let's let's talk about the exciting one, Gifts. What do you yeah. think of that? I well, I think it's overdue at, at this point, which you and I discussed in the past. I think that it's just another on a dog pile of blue draw engines at this point, and Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time have only made that more evident. And I think that it brings back a fun dynamic that you can build around. It's probably still quite good in vintage. I think, don't think there's any way that it could be quite as dominant as it was before. And Steve, you could talk more depth than anyone else as to why that is. But when Gifts was restricted, we had four Merchant Scrolls and four Brainstorms, among other things. <laughs> so, and, and when Gifts was restricted, we didn't have a number of other things that are counteracting it, um, like Craft Digger's Cage and right. a number of other ubiquitous graveyard hate effects and some other stuff. So there's a lot of, a lot of good reasons to unrestrict, and I think it brings a healthy new a- angle to the front. Well, you sort of answered the question I was going to ask you. I was going to give you, ask you the question, what are the reasons to have unrestricted gifts and what are the reasons to keep it restricted? I mean, mm-hmm. Clearly, the reason to unrestrict it is that you've got, it's it's, in comp- it's got much more competition these days. Mm-hmm. You know, with cards like Jace and Dig Through Time, I think it's a strong competitor. It's not yeah. clear that it's just much, so much better than Jace. I mean, the fact of the matter is that if people have a choice between a Jace or a Gifts, they most often choose a Jace. Of course, and that's not a reason. Several years, sure. Yeah, that's not a reason to necessarily keep something uh, um, to, to unrestrict, rather, because a card can be more powerful in multiples and create synergies like a mind's desire or something like that that you would you know it's less powerful as a singleton um but i think you know we talked about this in our podcast analyzing gifts i, I think the single biggest reason to unrestrict gifts besides jace and the evolution of the format where where one might believe that gifts isn't quite as powerful as it was is just the the new weapons and tools for combating the graveyard the most prominent of course being cage um, the reason to keep gifts restricted, though, I think, is Snapcaster made. <laughs> I mean, gifts is not without its new tools as well. Right, exactly. And and recoup. I mean, having Snapcaster Mage on le- uh, recoup on legs, I think it <laughs> makes makes gifts very much more dangerous than so, so. impotent in some ways than it was before. It bears mentioning, Steve, what the old default gifts configuration was. Now, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Just tell tell folks what the gifts piles were, and then we'll talk about the evolution of gifts for a minute. Now, gifts is a little bit like Doomsday in that you build your deck such that there are many, many flexible options. But in a vacuum, if you just wanted to win the game, the default gifts pile included uh, Yogmoss Will and Recoup, and again, in a vacuum, it could just include mana after that, Black Lotus and Lion's Eye Diamond if you ran it, or Mana Crypt. But the point was. With Recoup in your graveyard and Yawgmoth's Will in your graveyard, there was no combination of cards your opponent could give you off gifts that would prevent you from resolving Yawgmoth's Will. So you could put in Time Walk, if you had enough mana, you could put in Time Walk and Ancestral, those kind of things. If you were light on mana, you could just put mana with Recoup and Will. But the point was you could just guarantee Yawgmoth's Will happening if it resolved. Well, the default, the default, I mean, there were many different gifts iterations as gifts evolved. I mean, so I don't want to conflate two points, but one of the, 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 uh, you know, early on you had like the Belcher versions with Mana Severance and things like that. <laughs> but you know, the 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 default by the time gifts became established, especially mean deck gifts became the sort of deck to beat. The default standard uh, gifts pile was Recoup, Time Walk, Tinker, and Yogmos. And most mm-hmm. often they gave you Time Walk and Recoup, which was just fine because then you Time Walk with maximum mana, and then you Recoup Yogmos Will, and then you play Time Walk and Tinker and win the game. Yep. Um, and at that time it was Dark Steel. Yeah. <laughs> so you needed two. You needed two attack. Phase. 
attack steps. Uh, but you would you would have control after resolving Yawgmoth's will. Jeez, I can't believe, Steve, that we're talking about a deck from before Blightsteel. <laughs> that blows my mind. I just I can't believe that. Right, right. But that's another reason why to not unrestrict gifts is because the default pile did get a whole turn faster. Right. That's another good point. And now there's Key Vault, of course, which complicates the matter. Gifts have this sort of strange evolution where the decks that the, the, the first popular version of the deck was called Short Bus Severance Belcher, which basically the package was four thirst and two gifts. So gifts was like floating out there as a two of, but it wasn't until I developed the deck now known as famously as Mean Deck Gifts, where I was I was really the first person to play with four gifts and gifts decks. And you know, I put four gifts in there and four merchant scrolls and created this package where you go merchant scroll for ancestral, you know, the merchant scroll for gifts and, and it's on and so forth. And I used a Burning Wish because you could, at that time, uh, Burning Wish worked very differently as well. It was a singleton. And you'd get the tendrils and so on and so forth. Or you could, you know, Yawgmoth's will multiple times. Uh, anyway, the, the point is that um, the point is that uh, there are going to be, uh, I think, different ways that people push gifts, just like that there were back back in the day. Um, you know, so the Andy Probasco's short buds, Selvrin's Belcher, you know, did very well at some of those Star City Games events, but then Mean Deck Gifts just started doing dominating, and it en- ended up winning. It's ironic. I played Mean Deck Gifts at the 2005 Vintage Championship, and it won the 2006. <laughs> so <laughs> won the year later after I popularized it. Um, but um, so by today's standards, the deck it still it has more and more options than it did before right but at the same time the options for finishers in modern control decks have become have narrowed to blight steel and key vault right. mostly and so there's a kind of a tension with how you develop the deck these right days. so gifts gifts these days the gifts package i, I don't think you run recruit re- recoup i know some people are i think people are stuck in the past that they're running recoup you just no, you, you, you run a bunch of snapcaster mage and i think the default is probably some people are running as few as two but i think the default should be three or four yeah the thing is recoup was a terrible card yes you could draw in certain right. cases and get extra value off of your time walk but snapcaster is a great card so and much so better. there's going to be tons of times when you're gifting with a snapcaster already in hand and you can't lose. right so the gifts pile for example if you know a standard one these days is going to be just the exact same thing they talked about time walk yagmas will tinker and, and and uh snapcaster mage so if they give you the snapcaster mage and time walk you're good you time walk I, you know steve i don't necessarily agree i don't agree because time walk plus tinker is five mana and key vault is yeah four so but oh, I, so you can do you can construct this any kind of way and the real danger is if you have snapcaster already in hand then it becomes crazy so yeah, one thing yeah. you could do um you know you could definitely do the the uh time vault will take key Yawgmoth's will and then any other card you can't with a snapcaster with a snapcaster yeah you could do yeah you know and you could get people you know they give you one half of it you so for example you could do uh let's say key vault will and noxious revival is a pretty <laughs> is a pretty deadly combo the thing is one thing that snapcaster and key vault does is that you can you can spread out your value even more so you can put key vault in your in your piles but you can put time walk in there and and yogmoth's will so right. even if you don't have all the mana necessary to do it you can still spread out the value over multiple turns with even if you have you could have multiple snapcasters even so that's something there are certain lines of play that are more prolonged because snapcaster is so good but also just certain Certain uh, mana restricted piles that I was alluding to before, you could get Recoup, Yawgmoth's Will, Lotus, Mana Crypt, for example, if you were tight on mana. Yeah. And had other, had other gas in your No, there's, there's, yeah, there's lots of gifts piles. I mean, if you have Yawgmoth's Will in your hand, you just go for pure gas. 
But what I'm what I'm getting at though is the presence of Keeble has has reduced the overall mana requirements of Victory by one. Sure. I mean, I I believe after some preliminary testing that Noxious Revival is going to be a mandatory singleton in the gift stack. That's interesting. So you can maximum flexibility. Yeah, and you can flash it back with a Snapcaster Mage. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I you know, Key Vault, uh, Will and Noxious Revival is what what do you what do you give me? You're going to give me yeah. Key and Noxious Revival, which is fine. <laughs> Yeah. So I guess your opinion is that Gifts is going to be a viable part of the go-forward metagame, right? For sure. I think the, the, the trouble Gifts is going to have is the decks it always had trouble with, which were Blue-White Fish back in the day, Nullrod decks. Uh, I don't think these Kataki decks are very friendly for Gifts. Those are kind of troubling. All these kind of white hate bears are, are not great for Gifts. It should be completely borne in mind that Gifts targets the opponent. So the, <laughs> the creatures that prevent you from targeting your opponent, I forget what those white bears are that do that, but the Leyline of Sanctity effects, those will all prevent gifts from being cast yeah and and of course cage is going to be a problem as well so gifts yeah, players yeah. are going to have to you know there are ways of playing around it so if you if you have a cage in play i can gifts for things like you know noxious revival uh another gifts you know um demonic tutor um <laughs> you know things like yeah. that you can get a lot of value out of gifts still it's still going to be really good um and you can even throw something in there like an ingot chewer right into a gifts pile they're not yeah. going to give you the ingot chewer <laughs> so well, you're, you're going to have a hercules recall main deck probably for sure yeah yeah i think the deck is cool it's really for any of our listeners if you liked four treasure cruises but you didn't necessarily like playing aggro control like combo control more gifts might be a good deck for you now if you like doomsday now doomsday is not going anywhere but if you like doomsday gifts might be a deck for you too if you i mean if you've been around long enough to have played the first gifts then i think it's a no-brainer the deck is still potent and has fun new options so it's definitely in a position to make a comeback i think steve you talked about the hate bears decks but those are a really small part of the metagame this speaks to the whole unrestricting at the time of new set release issue but yeah if you if you don't assume major changes in the format i would say that gift stacks are going to have a really interesting nemesis in delver I really do think that there's a genuine tension yeah. there with this deck. Yeah. Any gift deck that you build is going to have to understand how to beat Delver right out of the gate. And if you can do that, then you've got a leg up. It's going to have to have a plan for Delver, let's put yeah. it that way. What are the white hate bears right now that prevent you targeting? So Aegis of the Gods is the newest one that says you have Hexproof. With that in play, you can't... I mean, if your opponent has that in play, you can't gifts because you can't target them. And some of the old standbys like uh, Leyline of Sanctity, for example, or Witchbane or... Gifts gets a lot of strength right now from its focus on Tinker. So it can do things, it can get you to t- I mean, it, it can evade the Null Rod strategies by creating a very rock-solid mana base with lots of basics, mm-hmm. and then and then just executing the Tinker plan, which is something Delver has difficulty dealing with. Um, and it can protect it can protect it long enough to, you know, do some real damage. Um, so it's like it's like piloting Oath in today's metagame. If your first order of business after you've put together your deck is to figure out how you're going to win when your opponent brings in their four cages. Yeah. And you have a lot of options for that. And I think in the case of Gifts, you probably have even more. Yeah, I think that's right. And so the good news is, for Gifts players, is that even though Cage ostensibly shuts off Young Hustle and Tinker, your engine that is Gifts Ungiven is also your path to victory for beating Hate also. In my opinion, one of the worst case scenarios would actually be rest in peace, because then you can't use something like Noxious Revival or Snapcaster Mage or anything to buy back the, the things you don't want. Rest in peace means you're going to have to gifts for value engines almost every time. You're going to have to gifts for tutors and hope to overwhelm your opponent. 
that's in terms of difficulty that's probably the worst case scenario but the simple fact is is that if you're willing to if you have a good pile of four value cards which you can almost certainly build into your deck then you've got access to your win condition against almost any hate even the worst case Leyline of the void is probably a better example than rest in peace but the same point is there if you're playing gifts you have to have a plan for what happens when your opponent brings in one or more of their dredge hate against i think steve that there's a very real chance that as if it wasn't the case already but dredge hate could become even more consolidated if gifts becomes big because certain things like Ixlid Jailer and Tabernacle for example the somewhat fringe dredge cards that are useful in certain decks uh, when they don't have value against gifts they're probably all going to leave sideboard you're probably going to see a major consolidation around cage leyline possibly spellbomb tormod's crypt rest in peace i mean the list is going to get even more narrow than the normal narrow list it already is yeah well i'm dying to see our report card i know we are, we kind of missed the boat a little literal figuratively on uh, treasure cruise <laughs> At least we did predict a number of those. I mean, which I think is better than all of the uh, all of our, our peers. But um. yeah, well, you're absolutely right, and we're, it's going to be a, it's going to be some some bitter pill to swallow to hear this report card. So for cons of Tark here. We have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is treasure cruise and dig through time. In our defense, <laughs> as we've already alluded to, the intersection of Delver and the Vintage Super League and Vintage Champs and Magic Online, all of those things meant that Treasure Cruise was far and away, I think, represented even more than it would have been maybe a year or two ago in Vintage. But that doesn't change the fact that you and I really undersold the presence of these cards. So let's talk about Treasure Cruise first. Steve, you predicted seven. I predicted a whopping ten. The actual number of Treasure Cruises in top eight appearances for three months following release, the highest number we have ever seen in one of our set reviews since we started doing this show so many years ago, 72. Holy smokes. That which is literally unprecedented. How many tournaments does that count? A lot. <laughs> it, that's the other thing too. Is it? Do you have a Do you have a denominator count? Do you have a, out, of, out of how many possible top eight appearances? Oh no, I'm sorry. Total tournaments? No, I, I couldn't tell you because that would be we don't have the kind of data mining available to us to answer that. But well, you can look at the number of top eights you pulled it from. Yes, but I would have to go back to find the top eights that didn't include treasure cruises. That will help us answer the, the dominance question, though. I, I know, the, but the simple truth is too is that unlike a lot of other cards in the past, this card only showed up in sideboards maybe once in that 72. So it's not like it was mixed amongst main deck or sideboard or anything. I remember just... our number from Snapcaster Mage was very high. Yes, it was. 50 or 60? Yeah, it was pretty close to that, yeah. yeah. This is much much larger. Yeah, it's. I mean, to beat Snapcaster Mage is a big deal. And that's why I was confident saying earlier, and I think you agree, that the from a format representation standpoint, Treasure Cruise is as unheard of in, in recent history. Yeah. So the restriction is... is definitely defensible from that standpoint so we we really radically undersold this one and we're gonna have to think carefully about cards like this going forward but there's not much more to say about treasure cruise that we haven't already said the fascinating one that i would like to talk about most here is dig through time well hold on i think it's actually that number gives us an upper bound for future predictions <laughs> well we thought it was an upper bound when we said snapcaster mage <laughs> yeah but you're right you're right 60 to 70 is still a realistic upper bound um Dig through time. Steve, you predicted five. Good on you. I predicted four. The actual result, which this is why I'm really bummed that they put these two cards in the same set, the actual result was 45. <laughs> 
Now think about that. The second place card in this set had almost the highest number of appearances we've ever seen. Wow. This is top five material. So Contatark here put two cards in the top five in terms of initial release representation. Wow. And it's a pretty good example of why the restriction on Treasure Cruise may not be enough. Because how many of these 72 Treasure Cruise appearances would have been just as successful with one to three dig through times instead? I would posit that a significant number of them would have top aided and done just about as well with dig through time instead of some of their Treasure Cruise. Obviously, Treasure Cruise is basically here to stay. It's going to still appear in a lot of decks. The overall appearances will probably diminish greatly if Delver does not continue to make up such a large portion of the metagame. But Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise, I mean, Dig Through Time could overtake Treasure Cruise now in terms of raw appearances, and obviously in terms of quantity, such that we might be talking about the restriction of Dig Through Time in three months. Right. It's, it's just fascinating. It really is fascinating. So I ostensibly had, took the over on Treasure Cruise, and you took the over on Dig Through Time, so it's kind of a split for us. But the margin of error here is so high that I don't think either of us should deign to claim victory. Right. <laughs> that was a major, a major miss on our parts. But we'll be mindful of the Treasure Cruise effect I think here on out. I mean, we were both confident they'd see play. We were just yeah, way yeah. off on the numbers. Yeah. Same thing with Dak Faden. Oh, it's worth pointing out Dak Faden had 46 appearances and he was omnipresent. Right. 46 felt omnipresent to us in terms of representation and yet Treasure Cruise almost doubled it. Fascinating stuff. Anyway, a couple more cards to cover. This is all small potatoes compared to that. Jeskai Elder with zeros across the board. Same for Stubborn Denial. Uh, Monastery Swift Sphere. I took the over on your zero, but there were none. So that one goes to you. I said one, you said zero. Jeskai Ascendancy. We both said zero, but there was one. Uh, the deck that I played against and the pilot, Jimmy McCarthy, at the TSO that I played in a couple of weeks back, he made, he didn't make top eight in that event. Oh, no, wait. They didn't record the, the results of that event. That's what it was. But he took a very similar list and made top eight into one this couple weeks later. So the Jeskai Ascendancy, when we talked about it, Steve, there was not a mature version of that deck, the likes of which you see in Modern and Vintage now. We were talking about the version one uh, concept, which involved green mana <laughs> and mana-producing elves and such. Well, it was a couple of, a month or two later that just around the time of Eternal Weekend, a couple of people innovated a version that would, didn't have green mana, was just red, white, and blue, and used Fate Stitcher to become an engine card out of the graveyard. Anyway, that thing started to become a thing in Legacy and is just barely good enough in Vintage, so one appearance there. There's a chance that uh, Jeskai Ascendancy will continue to make waves, but I don't think so, especially given Fate Reforged. Right. And the last card of note is Ugin's Nexus. You said 10, I said 6, the actual was 0. Oh, God. I know. I'm genuinely surprised about that. And also, I'm surprised because I thought maybe that card offered some more explosive responses from workshops, especially in the face of Delver's dominance. Yeah. But I think a lot of the workshop decks in response to Delver, really just went back to basics. Right. There was a lot of return to fundamentals in workshops. That makes sense. I mean, having a dead, uh, a singleton, you know, situational card may not be maximum value. It would be interesting to see if Gifts brings Time Vault more centrally back into the format if Ugin's mm -hmm. Nexus begins appearing. Interesting. Very interesting. Huh. Well, at any rate, that's it for Kanza Tarkir. The, the big hitters were obviously far and away above our expectations. The other cards, mm, not so noteworthy. But that does bring us to Fate Reform. All right, Steve. 
Fate Reforged has a couple of really interesting things for us to touch on. And the biggest among them is definitely Monastery Mentor. Now, I should say, asterisk, caveat right up front, I've already won a tournament with this card. <laughs> so my opinion of it is a little bit um, tainted as opposed to where we usually are with our set reviews. The tournament I played in was 15 players, modest attendance. However, it was the pre-release weekend, and we allowed, since it was a proxy event, we allowed Fate Reforged to be legal a week ahead of time. And the deck I built was Blue-White Monastery Mentor, and it was just gobs and gobs of fun. And it had three treasure cruises in it. So it's no longer legal. It never was legal in vintage to the deck I played. So how did you play it how did you play it before it came out? You get they allowed Yeah, it was just a small privately run event and we agreed with all the players to allow Favor Forge to be legal a week ahead of time. So I think to put it simply, I believe this card is the real deal in vintage. Monastery Mentor to use our normal metrics for cards is an interesting case. We always like to start by talking about the mana cost. Two colorless white is a mana cost that does not see play in vintage, for lack of a better term. <laughs> But honestly, it's mostly out of the fact that white cards, historically, have not been aggressive enough at this particular mana cost throughout history. There's just not any great examples of white creatures or effects that are really powerful and broken at this mana cost. Well, you've got uh, Aven Mind Sensor. So Aven Mind Oh, there we go, yeah. Is, is a good one. But anyway, the point of mana cost, though, is it's, it's ironic that this mana cost is so lacking in Vintage, but it is still play even mindsets here or axologers it's still playable the the thing is is that white is probably at its lowest point in its utility and vintage these days it's represented the least in terms of number of cards and in terms of archetypes and it's long been overshadowed as the control color of choice in favor of grixis thanks mostly to red's ability to deal with workshops yeah but at any rate monastery mentor though also definitely requires comparison to young pirates yeah and i think anyone who's listening to this probably has already internalized the real significant differences you get an additional mana to, to cast you get an additional toughness plus prowess but the real trick is is that your tokens are so much better and it can't be understated how powerful how much more power it means that your tokens have prowess. yeah so they're they're just larger than the pyromancer tokens so kevin what yeah. is your assessment of the casting cost what kind of decks are able to play this effect because of the casting cost how does it how's it how's it, it feel different than pyromancer it, it feels different in two key ways one is that the mana cost ironically lends directly to the kind of deck that's going to play it because of the way prowess works prowess triggers off of all non-creature spells most notably in vintage that means moxin the mana cost being one higher than young pyromancer is somewhat mitigated by the fact that you're incentivized to play all the artifact accelerants in such a deck so the difference between two and three is not as much in terms of time when you're talking about comparing this deck with five to seven or eight accelerants as opposed to say delver with three accelerants so you can have more than twice as many artifact accelerants as delver which means this creature can be cast on approximately the same time scale as young pyromancer can but you have to play all the moxin uh yeah so there's some tension there uh, your point is well made but the, the flip side is is that having moxin in your deck along with this card is a synergistic relationship before and after right 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 so drawing them before this card playing them before this card means you get the cast sooner and drawing and playing them afterwards means you get more turn but to me that also means this is not a card constructed or designed around the turbo xerox principles more more control Boy, that is a real interesting one. You, you make a fair point in that decks that tend to run Artifact Accelerants and Vintage tend to skew more toward control as opposed to aggro control, right? As opposed yeah. to the Delver and, and Bugfish models. 
However, <laughs> the fact that these tokens have prowess means that you actually play much more aggressively than you might at first think. Huh. Because the, if you play Monastery Mentor on the first turn, you're probably not making many tokens after you play it. Maybe you've got a pro, maybe you have an extra mox. I mean, you might get one. But if you play this in the mid-game and you plan ahead, you can easily get into scenarios where you're playing this and then making two to three more tokens. I mean, immediately, two to three initial tokens. Those tokens, if they were young pyromancers, would be a wide, difficult-to-remove, eventual threat. Those tokens, because they're monks with prowess, are immediately three tokens and four tokens. I, I killed a lot of players with just three or four tokens on the turn after I cast Mentor. And if you construct your deck with that in mind, it's not difficult to do, honestly. And it's because of all the tricks we've already mentioned with regard to the Moxin, but obviously you're playing other free-ish spells, such as Gush, and, and I played a couple of Kataxian probes. But there's all kinds of other neat little interactions that you're afforded because it triggers off of all non-creatures. Uh -huh. My favorite is Sensei's Divining Top. If Sensei's Divining Top basically says, if you have any cantrips during your turn, you can pay one colorless more to get one more spell off of them. Like if you have a preordain on your turn and top's in play, you just flip the top on the top of your library and then preordain into it and play it again. You've turned your one spell into two. And if you have Gush, you do the same thing. You put the top on top, draw into it, replay it. You, you, you can add one mana to all your spells and get one more prowess monk trigger out of it. It quickly adds up. With this guy and three tokens, that's four prowess creatures. If you cast three spells, that's three four fours and a five five. That's 17 damage from, from three spells. If you have top in play and three monks plus the, the mentor himself, then you just need basically two cantrips plus the two extra spells from the top. and it's lethal. So you don't really have to chain a lot of spells. A very minimal amount can get you there. Right. It's not like a storm deck. You don't have to count to nine or ten. Usually three to six is and three to five is lethal. So, where, how do you, so this is the kind of card that comes down and wins two turns later. Uh, it wins one, one next turn, mostly, yeah. I mean, unless you're playing it on turn one, then you probably need two more turns. Yeah, that's incredible. It's a Blightsteel Colossus. <laughs> it's very much so. And and it has all the benefits of being wide yeah. that Young Pyromancer right. does. In fact, it has even more benefits. Horizontal growth. Because, yeah. yeah, the horizontal threat means even if they bolt your Monastery Mentor right away, like, you might have you might have a Force of Will in your hand and a, a probe, a Cataxian probe. So you tap out to play the Mentor on turn two, because you're thinking you're going to probe, you've got Force backup, that's cool. You play the probe, and in response to the trigger, they bolt your Mentor, and it's still a 2-2. Two -two. So if you Force, you could protect it, but it would still die to the Bolt if they can back up their Bolt. So you Force, they Force back, your Mentor dies, right? But hey, look, you got two Monks in the process from your, from your two spells. Those two Monks can still win you that game. And quick. I mean, just the two of them, your opponent force of will, maybe they fetch, maybe they're 18. It only takes eight prowess triggers to win that so game. So uh, you're getting way in the weeds, and I'm just trying to figure out, Kevin, what is your overall assessment of this card? My assessment of this card is is that it opens up a whole bunch of, of new angles for existing and and new decks. So you can add this deck to a Delver shell, maybe a red, white, blue Delver shell. Play with Delver still, play with Young Pyromancers, get all the benefits. You can add this to more of a Bomberman shell, where you're playing the combo control route and you're using this to steal victories and have a very diverse threat. Or you can land somewhere in the middle, which is what I did, where I made a new archetype with just this and Snapcasters, and I used Mystic Remora and then the draw engine from Delver, plus all the artifact mana, to land somewhere in the middle of those two things. I just think this deck creates archetypes, and it makes some existing ones better. And anything that can do that is almost certainly going to make waves. Is it possible the printing of this card might have 
diminish the need to restrict treasure cruise? Oh boy, I don't think so, no, because I think treasure cruise plays very well with this card. I played three treasure cruise and three gush in the deck I played. It was basically a port of the Delver draw base, to you know, put simply. I don't think so. I think this card actually would have pushed treasure cruise even further ahead. <laughs> you might have seen a greater diversity of treasure cruise decks because right. of it, which is interesting and, and not, not without value, but no, I think this makes the case for restricting treasure cruise. But, but I still think it's good. The thing that struck out to me, stuck out to me, is that, that you, in a Delver or rather in a Pyromancer or Mentor mirror, you'd ra- you'd much rather be on the Mentor side. The Mentor really does nicely trump Pyromancer's token production. Definitely. For one more mana. Yeah, and this is not one of the reasons why I really like this card is the, the deck I put together was designed to prey on Delver. Right. Because I knew it would be well represented in my local metagame, and I was, I was rewarded for that. You definitely, definitely can't fight this with a young Pyromancer. But what's interesting, though, is that the Pyromancer can't play defense, exactly. but it can't. It can play offense. In other words, if it can remove the Mentor, then its tokens become just as good. Uh, no, that's not true. I, I don't understand what your point is. Oh, I'm sorry. They still have prowess. All your monks still have prowess, yeah. So even if they bolt the Mentor, if you got a couple of monks, they have a real hard time going on the offensive. Because a single spell from you means all your monks are bigger than all their elementals. And if you have multiple Mentors, then what? Well, in my deck, it rarely happens. So that was a 5% kind of situation that I ever played multiple Mentors. It's, it's overkill, I guess is what I would say. But the prowess doesn't become a doesn't double trigger for each creature. No, the monastery mentors do not give their monks prowess. Oh, I see. Prowess I see. have right, it the inherently. You just get twice right. the monk. Yeah, this card's the real deal. It's it's all about how much people are going to adopt it in my book. And I think that the it's not a Delver card in the way that a lot of people approach Delver these days. A lot of people want to play Delver the way you did, more like a well, like a control deck in one sense, but also a, I want to play this one threat early and then it to victory. Monastery Mentor is far more a combo control card. He's not. He's more like Psychotog than Quarian yes. Dryad. He's more like Psychotog is a good example. Than Quarian Dryad, which has to come yeah, down early. Exactly. Yeah. He's he's a I win next turn because I've played this card kind of effect. Our old Type 1 and Vintage listeners will understand those references. So at any rate, Steve, I'm predicting a non-zero amount of this guy. The, the problem is, is exactly how much. <sighs> It's funny, the whole treasure crew thing has made me a little bit gun-shy about my ability to predict things <laughs> are going to be good. <laughs> um, this is not a 60 or a 72. It's nothing like that. I think that a handful of people who are currently playing Delver will adopt this card and continue to succeed with it. I think a handful of people who are attracted to Bomberman will toss this in and continue to succeed with it. So, man. I'm thinking more than I'm thinking more than ten appearances even here. I'm thinking. Uh, well, I'm definitely gonna take the over on whatever you take. I'll probably take the over. Fascinating, man. I just uh, I think that the more I was very successful in designing a build of the deck with this card that preys on Delver. I don't think everyone is going to take that approach just by definition. Not everyone has the same goal as I do in building. But I really genuinely do think that if people continue to play blue-red or blue-red-green Delver, that this card is really poised to just beat those decks. Yeah. And that puts it in a really dangerous point to right. potentially be a very dominant force exactly. after some people have seen it happen. Yeah, I mean, and it also triggers off of artifacts like a Mox, which is incredible against yeah. workshops. Yeah, you can even put it in something like a Tezzeret shell. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I'm going to let you for sure. Well, I'm, I'm still going to go first. I'm just I'm just thinking that maybe 15 is even too low. I don't know. This deck, this card is just interesting <laughs> so much in my experience. And I really think it's very well positioned right now. Uh, I'm going to go with 15. I, w- I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth. 
I'm gonna take I'm gonna take twenty two. Twenty two, he says. I like it. I, I, I like think it. that's probably lo- too low. I'm so you know. First of all, I think you you come close to hitting the key points. I I think that um, Delver is going to be one of the top decks in the in the format mm-hmm. moving forward. And I, I think Pyro Pyro Delver. I think this card will stop that in its tracks. Pyromancer is just ubiquitous right now, and yeah. and this card is just a trump to Pyromancer. So the question, in my view, I mean, obviously you you trade off efficiency for power. You, whenever you have the case of like you know whatever small creatures, the mid range deck always seems to trump right. the smaller creature deck. Right. Um, it seems like th- though this card Mentor can tr- can turn on a dime so much faster than Pyromancer. Change roles, you mean? If you're comparing it in like a combo sense to Blightsteel, that's very dangerous in my opinion. Yeah. I think this card will appear in a in a lot of decks. People naturally want to play blue white, so to have blue white with this as a finisher is going to be very appealing to a lot of people and a lot of different shells. You know, the the array of blue white possibilities that already exist just will amplify, magnify uh, both through this card and magnify this card itself. So um, I think uh, this card is like a lens for the format. <laughs> it's going to magnify the the strategies in the format, especially blue white strategies, while while enhancing itself. I don't I don't really see a, a clear upper bound for this creature. Uh, um, I think it's going to prolifer- proliferate and it's going to be everywhere. Um, and, you know, especially because of the position of Pyromancer right now. The decks that have to deal with this are going to have to be like my, my, grow, de- my grow deck that can combo out. That's going to be how you answer it. And you can't combo out with Tinker because this this creature creates too many tokens too fast for a, a Blightsteel to efficiently it's, win through. You could generate, you know, tokens to, for the first chump block and then swing back and easily win. Uh, and I just, two things have just occurred to me hearing your thoughts. One, this deck, this card gets better. I mean, not better, but it still continues to benefit from hate cards that you play. Like, playing a cage gives you a monk and a whole bunch of prowess triggers. <laughs> yeah. Playing Tormod's Crypt gives you a monk and a whole bunch of prowess triggers. Playing Counterspells, almost all the hate cards you can think of for any deck in Vintage, they're all amplified when you have Monastery Mentor in play. So that's one thing. The other thing, though, I'm thinking of is that I feel like, and maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy since we're talking about it so powerfully, but I feel like people in general in the Vintage community are very adverse to three mana two twos. I think yeah. there's something visceral and historic about looking at a creature that costs the same and looks the same as Grey Ogre and thinking, well, that's just too slow for them. Yeah. And why would I play that when I can have Young Pyromancer for one less mana? One mana is a big deal. Two and three is a big difference. Uh, so I think there's going to be some natural resistance. But if everything you and I have said is true, everything you just concluded about how this matches up against Pyromancer Delver could have a snowball effect. Dragon Predator is one of my favorite creatures in Vintage, and it's three casting costs. So I'm... I'm not accusing you of that phenomenon. I'm just saying there is kind of a tendency that any comparison to Grey Ogre is a negative one. Okay. Anyway, anyway, I'm man to hear you talk about it. I want to raise my number. I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with 20. If you want to stick with 22, I'll still give you the over. And I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to 24. <laughs> I love this. Yeah, I like this card. I'm very excited about it. Um, but we gotta move on. Yep. I think we should move on to its its companion card in color and in rarity and in hype. Soulfire Grandmaster. Okay. Now she is a human monk, but she is only two mana, so she's a grizzly bear. Lifelink is fun, but check this out. Instant and sorcery card spells you control have lifelink. And, and, two is it is it. Next time you cast an instant or sorcery spell from your hand this turn, put that card into your hand instead of putting it into your graveyard as it resolves. So she gives all your instant and sorceries buyback of two is it is it. <laughs> now, 
The Life Link thing is only probably ever going to matter vis-a-vis Lightning Bolt and Vintage. Is this the first card that gives spells Life Link? Yes, it is. Which is fascinating, but also not terribly relevant. You might not even be playing red in a deck that has this, although you might. But the buyback is the real thing. Clearly, you can go infinite once you've got Time Walk, and clearly, you can just get ridiculous value, a la Gift Sum Given, if you just want to pay four more for your Ancestral or your Treasure Cruise or your Gosh. So this card strikes me as a value engine with, as a possible finisher in a combo control style deck. Unfortunately, <laughs> much like Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time, I think this card actually suffers in vintage context from being printed in the same dang set as Monastery Mentor. Think how interesting it would have been if Soulfire Grandmaster came out first and then Monastery Mentor was in the next one. We'd be thinking of all kinds of crazy things to do with our white creature and all our spells, and now there's no reason to do one and not the other, I think. Yeah. I also think it's important to note that this creature has almost effectively already existed in Azure Mage, meaning a grizzly bear where you can pay four mana to draw a card. And the four mana on Azure Mage is functionally cheaper than this four mana because you don't have to have a spell on the stack for it to activate. That said, I still think this is a legitimate threat, meaning if I was trying to play in a controlish mirror match and my opponent played one of these, I'd have to respect it because it can add up in the way that the Jason Mindstuff can add. But I just don't think it's going to fit in. It's, it's too much mana to, mm-hmm. to activate its ability. That's the problem. Yeah. No. And creature decks in Vintage these days... I mean, one of the problems with Treasure Cruise is it contracted the aggro archetypes down into almost just Delver. And right. this deck, this card can't can't compete on the, on the same aspect that Delver does. You can't right. go deep into adding more mana when your opponent is gushing and playing Treasure Cruise and drawing a bunch of cards. You just can't do it. Right. So maybe 10 years ago, this would have been a really potent vintage card, but not these days. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, well, even then it would have been a stretch. But <laughs> yeah, right. Even then it would have been a stretch. I'm going to go with zero. Me too. Okay. Next up, we have a trio of cards. And I, I think it's important to review these as a trio because they all point to the same end. Okay. We're talking about manifest cards. Light form, cloud form, and soul summons. Now, light form and cloud form are part of a cycle of auras where you manifest the top card of your library and then they become auras attached to it, giving it some ability. The light form is the white one, which gives it lifelink. The blue one is cloud form, which gives it hex. So three mana ways to make a manifest. And then there's soul summons, which is the sorcery version, which just for two mana manifests the top card of your library. So what these cards allow you to do is cheat a creature into play from the top of your library. And if it's the sort of creature that you can afford its mana cost on, then you can turn it face up and have it be face up in play. There's no morph creatures that see play in vintage really but (laughs) vintage has access to every ridiculously low mana ridiculously high power creature that's ever been made the the kingpin of which is basically phyrexian dreadnought so what's the case for any of these then the case is is that you preordain brainstorm sensei's divining top the top of your library or enlightened tutor or vamp tutor such that the top card of your library is phyrexian dreadnought then you pay two or three mana for it. Ah. Then you pay one more colorless mana at some point, maybe the next turn. And what you've basically built is the modern illusionary mask knot kind of deck. Got it. Now, mask knot hasn't been a thing for a long time. So how many of these, these would you have to play to make that work? Probably. Well, the real trick is if you can find other creatures that are synergistic. That's, in my opinion, that's the real challenge. Is just four dreadnoughts in your deck is not Yeah, good. I don't think so either. Yes, and not even in vintage where you've got white steel colossus and jace running around. Totally agree, yeah. It's tough, yeah. So I don't really think this is a thing, but I think it's worth mentioning that these cards are at their most 
broken in vintage, possibly at their best in Legacy, actually, where a Dreadnought is far more of a threat than it would be in Vintage, mm -hmm. and but also probably not quite good enough there either. I'm not a Legacy expert, so I'm going to leave it at that. But I, I just thought we should discuss these and touch on them. There could be a second creature, something that costs one or two mana that has ridiculously high power that you wouldn't normally want to cast. <laughs> That's a terrible drawback. Um, and I, I'm blanking on a good example of that because Dreadnought's still the best. Yeah. Also, if there were any kind of morph creature that you you felt like paying two mana for was better than paying three mana for, vis-a-vis -vis soul summons, then maybe. And the only one I can think of offhand, Void Mage Prodigy has seen some play. Not really for its morph ability, but it's there. But also, Fathom Seer can be extra gushes. Oh yeah, there's. I forgot about that card. Yeah, you're working real hard for more gushes when you can already play four gushes, though. And you can already play one treasure and four dig through time. So, I just think that the kind of things you could do that were broken by um, Masknot standards, however many years ago that was, uh, 12 years ago, mm -hmm. those things are no longer broken by today's standards. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, these are inter cute cards, but I don't see an applic a viable application for Vintage. If another analog to Dreadnought is printed in the near future, keep these cards in mind. But until then, they're probably not playable in Vintage. Let's talk about one that's a little closer to playable, in my opinion. Reality Shift. This is an instant for one blue exile target creature, so we're off to a good start. Its controller manifests the top card of his or her library. So we're getting closer to Swords to Plashes in blue. Huh. Because it's exile target creature with no other ostensible drawback, and they get a 2-2 out of the deal. Now, there is, a, there is a chance that could backfire, but... They must put the top card, too, so it could be a removal spell, in essence. Uh, I'm sorry, what do you mean? So, let's say they have, like, the Yawgmoth's Will on top of their library. Oh, yes, you could disrupt them, sure. This disrupts Mirage Tutors, absolutely it does. So there's a little bit of possible upside, and it could disrupt other things, theoretically, if your opponent is... Um, strategically stacking cards with Jace or, or Preordains, that kind of thing. You can disrupt them there. It's also potentially disruptive in the face of an opponent opposing Delver. If they've revealed their top card and it's one you don't want them to have, you can make them manifest it. Right. <laughs> so you get kind of get a fun two-for-one <laughs> if they're Delver there. So it's still card disadvantage, so to speak, because all you're doing is transforming. No, I'm trying not to use a keyword. All you're doing is morphing. Oh, wait. Um, yeah, it's pretty hard not to use a keyword. All you're doing is transfiguring... Uh, Transmuting? No. Changing. All you're doing is changing their creature into something much less bad. Um, it's pretty darn good against Blightsteel Colossus. However, Unsummon is also pretty darn good against Blightsteel Colossus. <laughs> and there's plenty of that action going around vis-a-vis -vis For sure. <laughs> so really, I think this card is in a growing list of blue cards that are getting better and better at turning threatening creatures into non-threatening ones, like the Swinestorm one that we reviewed a couple sets back. Um, and it used to be that I was very enamored with cards like this just because they were in blue, because for a while in Vintage, the closer you could get to mono blue, the better off you were. <laughs> for, for quite a while, actually, in Vintage. There was an inherent shift toward be as mono blue as you possibly could. And your mono blue deck from what year was that, Steve? 2003? 4? God, yeah. 2002. Yeah, you're right. 3, yeah. The paper bag might have really liked this card. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, I think I, I bring it up here because it's unprecedented in its efficiency in terms of blue. It's gets up there with Pongify in terms of how good it is. It well, the card, changes. for whatever reason, that, that sort of triggers me is that new counterspell that was printed not long ago for Oath. Swan Song. Yeah, it really does remind me a little bit about that. But you, you cannot underestimate the effect of removing someone's... Basically, you're exiling their top card. I mean, if someone goes, you know, has, t you know, uh, Time Bolt in play and they go Vampiric Tutor, you're going to be able to... In at instant speed 
deal with that creature. Yeah. That's a good point. It's a two for one. If, if what you said about Noxious Revival becomes a reality, then there could be actually lots of play in that. That's interesting. Keep in mind, too, that in that scenario, if you're trying to get value out of disrupting their top card, they do have to have a creature in play for you to cast this. Yes. <laughs> so if they're playing a, a creature, creatureless uh, game plan at the moment, you don't just get to disrupt their top card. I think that's really the problem of this card, is that, yes, there are certain upsides in Vintage where you far and away rather your opponent have their, their morph or their manifest rather than whatever horrible creature they've got. Not. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of other times when it's just not worth your two mana to try and downgrade something like a, a Dark Confidant. Blue has always just had bounce. I mean, even just Jace's bounce. This is Exile. Yeah. That's a much yeah. more serious a crime, if you will. <laughs> it is, but I think I'm speaking so much in terms of the current current metagame that against Delver's creatures, the best case for this is you're going to reality shift their Pyromancer because it's, but it's already still super easy to get rid of a Pyromancer, right? If you're talking about spot removal, this card's far inferior to Lightning Bolt and Swords of Plowshares, a zillion other things that don't see play. That's true, but but so that's what I'm getting at is about the blueness of it. The blueness of it is not as much of a benefit anymore as it as it once was, and we're not lacking for spot removal. It's not like vintage decks are trying to cram in more spot removal. Hmm. Okay, I suppose I can buy that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, there there is still a benefit. Don't get me wrong. I mean, fetching out a basic island is still preferable in the face of many archetypes, and there could be some games that you would win with this card, especially against workshops, whereby your ability to fetch out two islands plus a mox to remove a lodestone golem would would be the difference when your opponent has multiple wastelands in play. So I don't want to say that there is zero benefit, but the simple truth is is that decks these days have really adapted to the point where their removal is flexible enough and on color enough that Grixis Control has its access to its basic mountain for its lightning bolts and its ancient grudges, that kind of thing. I mean, our vintage mana bases have been hot, have been honed to a razor's edge since since uh, fetch lines were printed. It's it's it has become second nature to many longtime vintage players in terms of how you construct a mana base because you put the one to three islands in the main, you put the two to three of each fetch land in the colors you're in, you put the whole bunch of fetch and dual combinations in the right proportions in your sideboard, you put your mountain. <laughs> I mean those kind of things, that's just a template now. Right. And so a blue card showing up that's decent at removing creatures and exiling them, which is important, it doesn't materially change that calculus, in my opinion. Okay. Do you disagree? Do you think there's a deck that... Well, I just I just find this to... I think one of the key things you have to look at is, is this a novel effect? And I, I, I don't know how often... I, to me, it is. You don't have anything even remotely like this in blue. And splashing... You know, you can splash for red with bold or white with plow, but I, fe- I think this is sufficiently different that it warrants well, serious that's, attention. That's a fair assumption. Or, sorry, assessment. And I think that you and I didn't... Did we review Pongify? I mean, it was a reprint, so I don't think we really talked about it at the time. Yeah, probably not. Pongify should be, I think, a starting point for the points you're making, though. Costs one less mana. The creature that they, that you give them is far worse, of course, the 3-3. Three, three. And it doesn't have the other borderline disruptive top deck effects that you mentioned. So I guess this is probably, in terms of its ability to downgrade, is probably the most powerful, given the exile and given the fact that the creature they get is a 2-2. Two, two. I think it was able to be that powerful because in standard there's a far greater risk that the creature you're giving them manifested is, a, is an actual legitimate creature. So that's why they were able to make it as aggressively tossed as they could or did. 
Because a two mana exile, I mean, that's yeah, that's, that's way above the curve. Standard, it's way above the curve in blue for standard, but it's mitigated by the fact that you're far more likely to hit a creature with the manifest. In vintage, hitting a creature is going to be rare. My feeling is that being able to get a two for one is really the key value here. I, and I think that's going to be uncommon. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. The top deck tutoring combined with a creature in play. But it's, if you're building one of those mono blue decks like that we've that were played in the VSL, don't you play with at least one of these? Yeah, I'll buy that. I think this has a place in a deck like that. I don't think those decks are all position. I, I mean, I, I see the allure, <laughs> but Back to Basics is not a good card in against Delve. And Monastery Mentor is going to make Back to Basics even worse. I, I just, I'm sorry, I didn't want to get off on a tangent about that. Okay, deck. fair enough. I think VSL is not necessarily reality. That deck is not a common part of the metagame. This card is not enough to make it so. Fair enough. I see your point, though. This card is somewhat uh, stands alone in terms of its efficiency. Is it good enough to see play, though? I don't think so. I'm going with zero. You know, if if Cunning Wish were still a thing in Vintage, um, I would put a one. Yeah. I'm, oh God. So old school Psychotog list. We'd love to have had one of these in the sideboard, right? Yeah. That's a, a very legitimate place for that. Yeah. I just don't think there's a deck that wants. I mean, that. if you can exile a Blightsteel Colossus and. And then secondarily exile a Yawgmoth's will. That's just ridiculous. How many times? Seriously, how many times is your opponent going to mystical tutor for Yawgmoth's will when they have Blight? That's true. Like, it's true. <laughs> now, granted, uh, maybe Time Walk is a better example, but still. You, maybe your opponent has tutored for Time Walk and they resolve Tinker. This is a serious blowout against that sequence. But it's not a good enough reason to play this card just because that sequence might Yeah. Happen. And as you said before, Blue is already far and away good enough at getting rid of Blightstead Colossus. We're overrun with answers to Blightstead Colossus these days. I know you're you're very hesitant to dismiss this card outright by saying zero. Sure. I don't think that's a dismissal. I'm going to say zero, though. I'm going to say zero. I think we'll let the record show that you were as a very hesitant zero. Sure. This card is, is playable, but it probably won't play. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about another card very much along those same lines. Temporal Trespass. This is the huge Delve time walk for 8 UUU. Take an extra turn after this one, Exile Temporal Trespass. I don't think this card's going to see any play. I think that, and I, and I said this to some people at the tournament I played at when we were talking about this set, delving 8 cards is not the problem. The problem is that if you can delve 8 cards, if you have that capability on tap, then this card's effect is third in line after Treasure Cruise and then and Dig Through Time. If I have an 8-card graveyard and access to 3 blue, I would first want Treasure Cruise or Dig Through Time, and thirdly, this card. That is so by kind funny. Of, by, kind of, by kind of a large margin. Yeah. Because Ancestral Recall for 1 mana is way better than Time Walk for 3 mana. At 2 mana, there's a, a much closer discussion, but at 3 mana, I don't think it's close. I think Treasure Cruise is much better. I completely agree with you. You and I have talked along, it goes back to our discussion about what card is the least unrestrictable. Yeah. And we were both kind of astonished to figure out we both kind of thought Time Walk was the least unrestrictable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, but it has, it's very intrinsically tied to the two mana aspect of Time Walk. It always has been. That's the problem with Time Walk as a card, is it's two mana. Time Warp is not a problem with five mana. Uh, I don't think this card is a problem, even even if you can guarantee the Delve. And I don't think it's good. Also, it doesn't have any of the upside of Recursion. You can't get any value with Snapcaster Mage, unless you gift for this putting graveyard and Snapcaster it back, but forget that. No, I don't think this card's going to see any play. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I think the fundamental problem with it is the three mana cost. Um, I'm also of the opinion that um, Time Walk is ridiculously powerful, but um, <laughs> but that people will play Dig Through Time over this. Anyone who, any one of those 
crazy Team Serious guys who are playing seven or eight Delve spells in their deck right now, you let me know on Twitter. Let me know if you're going to cut three treasure crews for a couple of these in addition to your four days, because I want to hear about it. Are you going with zero, Steve? Oh, yeah, I'm going with zero. So the Delve spells keep on coming. Next time we've got <laughs> Tassiger the Golden Fang for 5B, legendary creature human shaman with Delve. The act, it's 4-5. Activated ability is 2 Simic Simic. Put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard, then return a non-land card of an opponent's choice from your graveyard to your hand. Now, it's worth noting, too, that we're a little behind on our set review. This card has gone up in price by three or four or five fold in the last 48 hours because Gerard Fabiano just won a Star City Games Open with it in a Sultai control deck. Uh, it's standard. That's standard, in my view. So this card's already proven itself in one format to be pretty potent, and there's a lot of press around it right now. Steve, in Vintage, we know that being able to delve is reliably mm-hmm. a thing, right? So we're at a rough spot with these delve. We keep saying the same thing over and over again, but if you take away the colorless mana here, playing one black mana for a 4-5 is Tarmogoyf territory. Right, that's true. And this creature has a activated ability that puts more cards in your hand. Yeah. So it's got the Hotel Soulfire Grandmaster uh, Azure Mage kind of activated ability on a huge body. And if you never get to activate the ability, you could still just win a game with a 4-5. And it matches up well against workshops. I mean, it trades with a lodestone, but that's good enough. Right. Now, you can't cast it on turn one, so it doesn't match up that well with workshops. But it still could be a one-mana creature in the mid-game against workshops. We should definitely point out, though, that this activated ability is probably at its worst in Vintage because of the Moxin. There's inverse synergy here with the beauty of the Moxin in Vintage because of the non-land clause in here. In a deck that has 6, 7, 8 accelerants in it, that's going to be approximately 25 to 30% of your mana base. Right, right. Which means that every time you flip over a land in a non-vintage format... They're going to give you a box. Yeah. Yeah, there's a 20 to 30% chance that that's going to be the card you get. You're going to effectively get a land out of this card. So his ability is not to be faux specific about it, but his ability is probably 20 to 30% less good in this... Faux specific. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's obviously way oversimple. But the point is you're going to draw some mocks in every once in a while with this, which is going to be a box. Yeah, I mean, five is certainly doable for delve very quickly that's a turn two play so this is this is comparable to it's just why four five you know why not five six or something <laughs> then you get i think that makes a big difference frankly it does but it's, you're sounding kind of greedy aren't you <laughs> <laughs> fair enough now there's so many intersections of issues going on here we talked about the banner restricted list updates combined with this set the effect of delver one of the things we didn't really belabor is the the narrowing of archetypes in the metagame. Delver pushed out a lot of other aggro decks in Vintage. Most notable on that list is Bug. Now, it's not like Bug disappeared, but Bug was a big deal two years ago, and Delver reduced it to almost insignificance. This is a Bug fish creature, through and through. I could totally see some replacing Tarmogoyfs with this in Bug. And if you could win plenty of games without ever activating his ability. Wow. Yeah, me too. You, you might be right. So... I, I, I firmly believe this card is vintage playable, but I, I don't think now is the right time. Delver is still so huge, and Tarmogoyf was still not good enough to beat Delver. In fact, you're, as your primer, I'm sure, makes careful note of, Tarmogoyf was just not good enough to even make Delver's cut eventually. Hmm. And it's definitely not the sort of thing you want to have in the, in the, the right. mirror, thanks to Pyromancer. 
That said, depending on how your bug deck is built, if you can find a clever way to get one over on Young Pyromancer, all of a sudden you might be able to find yourself in the mid-game. Hmm. Uh, where you've got your... Also, uh, Deathrite Shaman makes this card a lot better in terms of activating his ability. Oh, that's right. So maybe you get to the point where on turn 3 you resolve this and you have 4 mana. Yeah, you cleared your graveyard of all the crap, and then they have to start giving you good stuff. And and Bug is also the sort of deck that would have reduced Moxon, so maybe you only got three accelerants in your deck, three or four. Right. I don't know. I, I think it's a possibility. I think. I, I agree. I, I really think that the effectiveness of that, which I've just described, hinges heavily on your ability to find a way to fight Delver on the appropriate axes. <laughs> because Bug just hasn't been able to do it before. The restriction of treasure pools helps, but I don't think it helps enough because Gush is a major problem for Bug. So I think this card's playable. I don't think, and even if it was, if someone came up with a really good Bug deck tomorrow, I'd be surprised, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. I don't think this goes in anything else. I don't think you add this to Grixis. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah, this feels so natural for the bug deck. That was, I think, yeah. was a very keen observation. But I think it's highly unlikely in the near future. So I'm, I'm inclined to go non-zero because there's lots of creative people out there, so I'm going to go with one. Yeah. <laughs> bug is a very beloved deck. There's a lot of players who really love the bug, and those are the kind of people who might be interested by this. Anyway, what do you think? Do you think of non-zero? Um, I think Bug is just out of the format right now. I think this will yeah. eventually see play. I just don't think so right now. That brings us to our question for this episode. What Fate Reforged card do you think is best in Vintage? Thank you for listening to episode 41 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Not safe for the game! <laughs> <laughs>